you would open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in 1 Samuel. The people of Israel have revealed the true condition of their hearts by demanding to have a king just like all the other nations around them. They've demonstrated over and over again that even though God had repeatedly delivered them when they cried out to him in dire circumstances, it didn't take long for them to again abandon God and wander away. Running along parallel to the people's unfaithfulness is the incredible story of Samuel, who God raised up as a faithful high priest and God's prophet, and actually the last judge of the judges. In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, all the elders of Israel came to Samuel and demanded to have a king like all the nations. They really wanted a change in their system, a change of government, if you will. Really, a king, human king, in God's place. Samuel was very displeased by their demand, and he immediately went to the Lord in prayer. And surprisingly, for probably most all of us, God told Samuel to grant their desire, but warned them what this would mean. As we've already seen in chapter 9, God grants Israel's request and prepares the way for Samuel to know who to pick as Israel's first king. But there's a whole lot more to this than we first think as we've probably noticed as we've been going through this wonderful book. Saul was the king God gave them, and most interesting and really most telling is the fact that God gave the people of Israel exactly the king that they asked for. A worldly man who looked and acted like he was a leader, Tall, taller than anybody in Israel, the text says. But he was not a true spiritual leader. We find out as we go through this book, we're not quite there yet, but we get a taste of it already a little bit today, that Saul's policies and his behavior will actually hinder the welfare of Israel. Now think about this. In other words, God used Israel's own demand for a worldly king as a means of actually punishing them and showing them in His grace their true need of the future spiritual king, the Messiah. And we should not respond by, well, that's strange, because God works 
in each of his children's lives many times exactly the same way, especially when we're stubborn and not listening. Sometimes, many times, he may give us exactly what we think we want in order to show us how empty it is so that he can get our attention. Saul's reign actually acted then as a barrier separating Israel from God's best for them. And what unfolds in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel is a step-by-step description, which we saw two weeks ago was a description of the seemingly ordinary events in life, twisting and turning into the unveiling of Saul being the man who would be Israel's first king. It's a great story. But in the middle of the story, right in the middle of chapter 9 and verses 15 through 17, there's this intrusion into the text, which is a clear and undeniable behind-the-scenes explanation of God's hand providentially orchestrating these events to accomplish his purposes in this process of naming a king. In other words, on the one hand, Saul is set apart in God's mercy to deliver Israel from many Philistine intrusions and even some of the other enemies surrounding Israel at this time. But on the other hand, Saul is the worldly king that Israel asked for, and therefore they would learn once again about setting someone else up besides the Lord as the one they look to for deliverance. Both of those things are going on at the same time, which is one of the reasons this story of Saul is so compelling. In one sense, then, God shows his mercy both ways. And that's what we need to understand. By doing what is necessary to get his people's attention, using Saul to successfully fight the Philistines and others, and by showing them how very much they, what, need the Savior. They need the coming Messiah as they followed this wayward and disobedient king. And, as such, they suffered the consequences of such godless leadership, which made them see their true need for the true king. So as we look at chapter 10 today, verses 1 through 16, we must keep in mind the big picture of this whole section from chapter 9 through our passage today, which is really divided into four pretty distinct parts. We saw in chapter 9 already, two weeks ago, God's providence displayed in the whole process of choosing the first king. Saul is asked by his father to go find the lost donkeys, and so he and his servant take off to find them. And all these strange, what our people in our culture would call coincidences happen. 
But we find out they weren't really coincidences at all, that God used every part of these ordinary life details to let Samuel know who the king would be and to prepare Saul to go from somebody living in rural Israel in an agricultural world who had no clue what was going on to realizing that he was the one that the people of Israel had asked for to deliver them from their enemies. Today we look at the rest of this story, the other four main parts. The assurances that Saul received that he really was to be Israel's first king. And then we see a small section about how God equipped Saul to be the deliverer in those days of military crisis. And then we end in the middle of chapter 10, seeing this strange account how, about how when Saul finally got back home, he concealed all the really important stuff that had just happened, which we find out is a window into his heart and what really did happen. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 16. 1 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. 
And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we're at the second part of this section in 1 Samuel from chapter 9 to the middle here of chapter 10. And we see the assurances in verses 1 through 9 that Saul received that he really was to be Israel's first king. And you might just think about this as we go through. It took a lot of convincing. A lot of things had to happen before he started to even get an idea of what was going on. Remember all the ways that Samuel had honored Saul the day before we see this oil anointing him in chapter 10, verse 1. All the ways that Samuel had honored Saul, that Saul didn't really understand at all and was really quite confused about. First, Samuel told Saul he would tell him all that was on his mind, including the fact that his lost donkeys were okay. And then Samuel told Saul that all Israel desired him and his family, which really threw him for a loop. Saul was seated in the place of honor at the dinner. Saul was served the choice cuts of meat and told that they had actually been set aside in advance for him. And Saul was housed at Samuel's house that night as a special guest and told that he had a special meeting at dawn with Samuel. Now this all built up to this private conversation we see between Samuel and Saul that begins in verse 1 of chapter 10. First, Samuel anoints Saul with a flask of oil. Then Samuel says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he goes into all these meetings with different people. Two guys, three guys, and then a whole group of guys. The anointing here signifies at least two things. One is that God's authority over Saul, first, as his own servant. And only then 
as a king of Israel. And that's really important to recognize because we're going to see that that was Saul's especially big problem. He really didn't consider himself under the authority of God. And secondly, the anointing also symbolized the Holy Spirit's equipping of Saul for this special service. Saul's special service would be mainly in the area of dealing with who? Israel's enemies. The sign here in verse 1 and described in verses 2 through 9 actually refers to a series of three signs, all meant to do what? To assure Samuel, Saul, excuse me, that he does have God's authorization for kingship. Samuel the prophet tells Saul three things that will happen to him. And really, three things with some great detail. He'll meet two men at a specific place, and they will tell him the donkeys have been found. He'll meet three men on their way to worship at Bethel, carrying offerings for sacrifice who will ask about his welfare, and then they will give him two loaves of bread. And third, he'll meet a procession of prophets coming from worship. And not just walking drably down from worship, but playing their music. And the Holy Spirit will rush upon him, and he will join their prophesying We read in the text in verse 6, turning into another man. We then find out in verse 9 that all all these things happened exactly as described, confirming to Saul that God really was installing him as king. And there is something in our text right there that is of vital importance to see. Notice that Saul is to receive both the power of the Holy Spirit that we see in verses 6 and 7 and the direction of the word of God through God's prophet Samuel in verse 8 where he tells him, go there, wait. And we find out later that's going to be a big issue. Not this chapter. Not our text today. So, What does this mean? Why is this important? In other words, Saul, who has promised God's power to deal with Israel's enemies, is supposed to submit to Samuel, the prophet, who brings God's word. This is one of many places in Scripture where we learn that the Holy Spirit and the word of God must never be separated. God's Spirit empowers, but that power is always to be exercised in obedience to God's Word. A clear application question for us could be, what right do we have to think that we can enjoy the Lord's power and His presence 
when we deny his lordship by trampling on or ignoring his word. Next we see how God equipped Saul to be the deliverer in those days of crisis. And this is in verses 10 through 13. The first two signs pointed out to Saul God's sovereign and providential work in changing his status when he met the two men and then the three. But the third sign confirmed that it really was God who had anointed Saul, which we see is the one that's explained now in detail. It also provided the divine equipping, this third confirmation, that this call on Saul actually demanded. This is why the details of the third sign here are, are narrated in verses 10 through 13 with all this special detailed information. We've already read in verse 9 the statement that God gave Saul, what? Another heart. Then we see in verses 10 through 13 that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. This happened near Saul's home in Gibeah. And the home folks who knew this guy and probably saw him grow up caused quite a stir amongst these people who knew Saul. Why? Because it was so out of character for him. Completely out of character. Which is why they say, what's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And we find out that that became a proverb. What does that mean? We would say something like this. Well, wonders never cease. You know, it's almost too much to even swallow. So we we have a saying like that. That's kind of what this meant in this culture to those people. And it was so dramatic that we find out in the text that it was actually used a long time after this. Something really strange like that happened. What did the people say? What came over? The son of Kish, is Saul also among the prophets? So if you hear, is Saul also among the prophets? It's like saying what? The wonders never cease. It shows something about how God works, does it not? And what we're asking is exactly that kind of question. If you're not asking this question, you watch the late football games. This question is pretty obvious. Does this mean that Saul really did experience regeneration and true faith, a real spiritual transformation? And we always jump right to this. Well, let's use the Old Testament since we're in the Old Testament. Let me read you just a couple of verses. From Ezekiel chapter 36, God says there, through his prophet, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Is this what happened to Saul? That's the question. But we need to keep reading in Ezekiel 36 because the next verse, verse 27 says, well, we see there that God gives the new heart of rebirth for a purpose. 
He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, a, be careful to obey my rules. Did Saul's changed heart result in a new zeal to serve God and obey his word? Now, we've already got a clue to the answer to this by the last couple of verses through verse 16. Did Saul's changed heart result in a new zeal to serve God and obey his word? I would say, no, it did not. We'll see in the next paragraph, as I just mentioned, the curious example of Saul actually hiding what happened which was typical of him about anything spiritual. It always had to go through his grid. He had to make the ultimate choice about what he would take and how he would do it, no matter what God said about it. One commentator explains it this way. Whatever else happened to him, Saul did not receive eternal life or enter into a true saving relationship with the Lord for the simple reason that he showed no inclination to obey God's word. So what did it mean that the Spirit of God rushed upon him and that he prophesied amongst them? The best answer, I think, recognizes that in the Old Testament, we see many times that God sends his spirit to enable certain servants to perform designated tasks. And really the emphasis in those passages on God calls somebody to do something, and we don't really know where they stand with him on that eternal question, but we know that God's spirit enables them to do what he has called them to do whether it's the people who put together the tabernacle, whether it's somebody like another judge, the one with the really long hair named Samson. We see over and over again different, different people who obviously had God's power on them through the Holy Spirit working so they could accomplish what God had called them to do. God's Spirit gave Saul a new sense of calling so that in this limited sense we can say that he received another heart, which is a better translation than a changed heart because when we see changed, we immediately read that and we think, oh, it's a regenerated heart that's turned to flesh, but actually it just means another direction, another inclination. Saul never showed the evidence of true spiritual rebirth. And once he is king, we see that made clearer and clearer and clearer, especially as David comes on the scene. This is actually a good illustration, then, of Jesus' teaching about the necessity of a faith that is disposed to or inclined to worship, love, serve, and obey God and his word. And Jesus 
sometimes when he made these statements or, or actually proclaimed these truths, people left in droves when they were confronted with this truth. What is it? Essentially that our, our good works are not the cause of our salvation, but works are a necessary consequence and evidence of true and saving faith. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I've got to read it. We all probably know it. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see an Old Testament story that's got this account that is actually explained many other places in Scripture, and one of the clearest is by the Lord himself. Because amongst the people who had been called to be God's people, there was a whole lot of problems with self-righteousness and believing in works saving you. Appearances. So the evidence of salvation is not given by dramatic experiences or even great deeds, especially when there are no signs of repentance from a life of sin. Instead, the people who have been savingly known by Christ are those whose faith trusts in his word and whose lives are marked, marked, by turning from iniquity in obedience to God's will. It shouldn't surprise us when one way to describe this amongst the great men and women of faith down through history has been that being a Christian means living a life of repentance. Present repentance is based on the repentant heart that cried out for mercy for a Savior that God supplied in His Son. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. And nobody in here is going to argue that. But we sure set up a lot of ways to think that we're already there. This is a continued gospel story that we're living in. Okay, let's look at this last section, the fourth section of 1 Samuel that ends with Saul finally getting back home. When Saul did get home, he concealed what all really happened. He made no mention at all about the matter of the kingdom. Nothing. Even though his uncle asked him this specifically, did you hear his uncle's tone? What did Samuel say? 
At least it sounds like he knew who Samuel was. He only said that Samuel had told him the donkeys had been found. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like what we want to say is my answer when I was in junior high school so many times. But the truth is, we still go that direction way too often, do we not? But that explains it all. All Saul said or related was that the, he, told, he told me the donkeys had been found. We can see already that Saul was exactly the kind of person who seeks some kind of spiritual experience but who has little or no interest in cultivating a true and living faith that wants to know and serve the Lord. And we live in a time where this is still a huge problem. And the tougher things get for believers in the world that we live in, the more it will become apparent who the real Christians are and who are the ones that were just in it for the benefits that they thought they could get from God by proclaiming his name. Israel got exactly what they wanted. A king just like their neighbors, a big guy, a head taller than everybody else, probably a great fighter, but he didn't want to know God. He was not interested. And we will see how this plays out. There are many many bitter experiences coming in the chapters ahead. And many Israelites, after this time even, down through the years, who will cry out for what? A true king who does God's will and not the will of the world. One striking difference between the coming Messiah king and Saul Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was, in Israel's world, a royal symbol of one who brings peace. Saul arrived as one who couldn't even find his own donkeys. When I read that this week, I thought, that pretty much sums up this story. It's sad, but it's still so true. We come now to celebrate the table of the Lord, which is a visible and physical reminder of the joy that we have as his people to know him, to know him, really know him, not know about him alone, to know him. And to have him in our lives. The reverence that we are reminded of as we are privileged to give him every minute that we breathe. Realizing that every breath we take, we live as a people. If you know the Lord, 
who are God's possession. He's purchased us with the precious price of his blood. 